Let's pray together. Father, as we've just sung, our only hope is in you. Um, thank you, Father, for giving us hope in, in the darkness. In the face of, the, of death, dying, eternal judgment, Lord, you sent us your Son. Thank you for sending us the light of the world that might save, that gave his life so that we might be saved out of darkness. Set free from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of God. Lord, we praise you for your rich blessings in Christ. Help us to reflect upon um, you as we look to your word now. Nourish and feed us from your word. Equip us as your people to be the, uh, the, the people, that you, the church and the body that you wish us to be so that we might faithfully serve you in this generation and in this place. We entrust this time to you and ask your spirit to, to go before us, to fill us and teach us your truths. Cause your word to go forth and not return void. May you cause it to accomplish exactly that which you purpose to do in the lives of all who hear today. We thank you, Lord, and praise you for this time in your word. And may we hear and may we respond as an act of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to uh, the book of Numbers once again. Numbers chapter 16 uh, is where we'll be today. <clears throat> and we're going to look at the first 40 verses of Numbers 16. Numbers 16. Numbers 16 and 19 are really one um, kind of section, and this begins another section of, uh, of the book of Numbers that reminds God's people of the, uh, of the importance of the priests, and the importance of uh, this, this group of men, these Levites, who, sons of Aaron, who would be mediators between God and, and men and Israel. And uh, we see that uh, uh, in the very beginning of this passage, we're going to see this rebellion that really is strikes at the heart of uh, the priesthood, Aaron's role. Um, but it's not just Aaron, but it's also, we'll see that it's, in a, it's a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and rebellion against the Lord. This past week uh, was the Shepherds Conference. Uh, I did not attend, but I, I got to attend virtually uh, through, hopefully some of you guys uh, had a chance to go. I was just reminded through some various photos. So we used to have send large groups of us to go down. And I know because of the pandemic, it's harder for many of us to, to, uh, to go down there and the forsaken time and all those things. But uh, I reflect fondly upon this conference because every time I, I, I attend the conference, even the, the few opportunities we had to watch it and stream it live uh, for us this week, I was just encouraged by God's truths, encouraged by God's, especially as a shepherd of God's flock. 
And this year's theme was uh, the unashamed, unashamed. And uh, somewhere along the way, 2 Timothy 1.8 came to mind, and where Paul writes to young Timothy, then his very final letter to young Timothy, he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And we're reminded, um, not only through the conference, but mostly through God's word, that we are not to be ashamed as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed to be ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the ministry. We're instead to not be fearful of men, but we're to be bold and courageous in the, the ministry of proclaiming it, to, of telling others about the testimony of Jesus. And Paul's warning tells Timothy that really the ministry of proclaiming the gospel is at the same time an invitation not for comfort, not for ease, but it's an invitation to suffer. That if you want to be, or if you are going to be, one who is faithful to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a call to suffering that you are answering. There will be times in ministry, and this is, this is true for, for leaders who are pastors and shepherds, but I think as believers in Jesus Christ, it would be true to some extent for you as well. There will be times that will be, in, as you proclaim the gospel faithfully, there will be times of rejection, there will be times of ridicule, there will be reproval. There will be moments of restlessness, restless nights. You don't get much rest. And there will be, on occasions, outright rebellion. So the man who wants comfort above all, above all else ought not to be a shepherd. If you want to, to find, be at ease or be at peace and, and not have troubles, then you probably don't want to be a Christian. Because the life of a Christian, the one who is called to be a, test, a witness of Jesus Christ, is going to find times where... It will be uncomfortable, and there will be times of suffering. If one once wishes to be a witness of Jesus Christ, to be a shepherd of God's church, he must be willing to suffer as he unashamedly proclaims God's truths. And throughout the book of Numbers, God's leader, God's chosen leader, Moses, and Aaron as well, has endured suffering has endured the, the grumbling and complaining of, of, uh, of various peoples, particularly from God's people. Initially in chapter 11, they, Moses heard their grumbling against, about their circumstances. There's no meat. By chapter 12, the grumbling was now, was, began to be directed at him. You married an unbeliever, a foreigner, by his own sister and brother, no less. In chapter 14, the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron for leading them to a promised land that was filled with giants that are going to kill us and our children. Of course, that final grumbling, we, as we studied, led to the God's judgment of 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They would not get to enter into the promised land in that generation. They would all die. But... Humbled by the judgment of God, did the Israelites learn the lesson? As we see here in chapter 16, sadly, the answer is no. Once again, grumbling again, there was grumbling against Moses and Aaron's leadership. In fact, just like Numbers chapter 11, there's not just one instance of grumbling in chapter 16 here, but there are two, two instances. And we're going to focus on the major instance, the first instance, and that is the rebellion led by Korah. And when we come back next time, um, I'll we'll pick up the second instance of rebellion. And as we see how God, and to a lesser extent, how Moses and Aaron respond to the grumbling of God's people, 
the rebellion of, God, of Israel, we were, are going to learn about the danger of grumbling against God's leaders. These, these words are written for the next generation to remind them to be careful when, when, in rebelling against God's leaders. And we don't, and, and there is a, and we know that if, even in the life, it's, it's con- quite common to complain against leaders, uh, not just God's leaders, God's leaders of, of the church, but leaders of, of, our, of our government. And if when we're, especially when we're teenagers, we grumble against the leaders of our family as well. Grumbling is just a part of the sinful nature. It doesn't excuse it, but we understand it. It's quite common. And there are certainly times when leaders perhaps deserve or, or, or uh, rightly kind of have earned the grumbling complaining of God's people. They are, have been unfaithful to the, to the office that they have been called to do. And perhaps they even ought to be replaced. But often, complaining against leaders particularly God's leaders, turns out to be, as in this case here in number 16, rebellion against God. In God, we learn, judges those who rebel. Today, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 40 of chapter 16. And then this passage, we're going to study this rebellion accord. It's a very familiar kind of story to many of us who've grown up on the Bible stories of, uh, uh, throughout, as children. And we're going to see today three points, three observations of rebellion against God's leaders that warn God's people of the danger of grumbling against leaders. And <clears throat> when I was preparing this message, I, was felt a little, I felt a little um, odd, in a sense, warning you not to grumble against me. Uh, you know? um, but this is God's word, and I will unashamedly tell you what God's word says. You be good Bereans, check it out for yourself, and listen to what God says. When you do that, let's do that. So let's look at, then at this passage, this rebellion of Korah. And as we look at number 16, we see three observations of, God, of this rebellion of Korah against God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. And first of all, we see in verses 1 to 3 the rationalization of rebellion. The rationalization of rebellion. Then when you rebel against God's leaders and you rebel against God, you're going to have to rationalize in your mind. You're going to have to give a reason, you know, uh, it's been recently, we've, we've, uh, uh, we've been, our minds, because of the war in Ukraine, have thought about what, what's the reasons for war? What's the reason that you go to conflict? And just as there's, there's governments need reasons to go to war, causes for war, well, when people rebel against God's leader, they, they need to have a reason too. And that's, uh, that's true on many levels of, of leadership in our world. You need to have a reason. And, and if, it's, if it's rebellion against God and God's leaders, you, you're going to have to rationalize in your mind somehow. Let's look at verse 1 to 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Just a little background here. Where the rebellion is led by a man named Korah. In fact, the, uh, the, just the, the, um, 
the, the grammar underlying here emphasizes that this, this, is, this rebellion is led particularly by one man, by Korah himself. He is a Levite. He is also a, of the Kohathite clan. And that's a place of honor in, in the, among the nation of Israel. And whereas Aaron and his son served as priests, the Kohathites were responsible for the holy objects of the tabernacle. Back in chapter 329, the Kohathites were assigned to a camp on the south side of the tabernacle. It is the same side where the tribe of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, remember, was to camp as well. So it's not surprising then that uh, those who joined with Korah in this rebellion were his neighbors of the tribe of Reuben. Dathan, Abiram, and On joined Korah into this rebellion. But even it was not just them alone, but they were joined by 250 leaders of the congregation, presumably from the other tribes. This was no insignificant group of, of, of people who were rebelling against Moses and Aaron. These were leaders in Israel. These were men of renown. They had a name. They had influence. This was a dangerous point for Moses and Aaron. Easily, they could have been overthrown or, or even worse, killed. And these leaders, led by Korah, assembled together against Moses and Aaron. It was against their, their cause, their, their, their complaint was against Moses and Aaron. And we see here a common scenario where we have leaders opposing other leaders. You go through church life long enough, you will hear of stories where in the churches there are leaders opposing other leaders over various matters. And usually when leaders oppose other leaders in a church, usually there leads to church division and usually leads to church splits. Now it's inevitable because we're all finite, we're, all, we're not all knowing people, that, that leaders will disagree in ministry. We have it all the time here at Essa Bible. It's normal, it's okay, just as you disagree with, with people all throughout your life. No, disagreement is normal. But when we do, especially as leaders, especially as those who are to be godly examples to others, we must disagree in a godly manner. Not just simply to say, well, forget about it, I'm going to ignore it, but to disagree in a humble, respectful, truthful, faithful manner. When we discuss uh, our differences among ourselves as leaders, we always strive to arrive at least, at, if not unanimity, because we, we disagree, at least a consensus that we may not agree with that, that particular conclusion, but I've already spoken my piece about that matter. I've given you my, my input, and I'm going to let you make that decision. I'm going to trust you to make the best decision, and I'm going to support you in that decision. We do that uh, often in our, our leadership. And when we do that, we don't then go out and air our differences privately to our close friends and family, much less publicly to others. But that's what happens here. We see that Korah and his fellow leaders air their complaints publicly. Their words are quite strong. They've gathered all of Israel together. This is no gentle persuasion. They've told Moses and Aaron, you have gone far enough. This has to stop right now. We are wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. This is insane. We're all going to die here. Yes. Why do you guys think you can exalt yourselves above the rest of us? Why do you two get to make the calls? 
and in support of the rebellion, Korah and his company appeal to spiritual truths. They want to justify the rebellion. Number one, they, they, appeal, they have two truths that they appeal to. Number one, everyone in Israel is holy to the Lord. We're a holy nation. We're all holy. And number two, God dwells in our midst. Everybody is holy to the Lord, and everyone has God dwelling in their midst. There's, we're all equal in God's eyes, and so therefore they conclude that anyone then can be a, ought to be a leader of Israel. Why does it have to be Moses and Aaron? When people want to challenge the leadership in the church, it will almost always be through an appeal to biblical truth. And certainly there's wisdom in that. But here in this case, while the rebels, uh, their premises are true, their conclusion doesn't necessarily follow. Moses and Aaron are exalted above everyone else in this case because God had chosen them. It doesn't matter that everyone's holy before the Lord. It doesn't matter that God dwells in the midst. God had particularly chosen Aaron, Moses and Aaron to be the leaders of Israel to lead them out of Egypt. It was back in Exodus chapter 3 where God appeared to Moses in a burning bush on Mount Sinai and called him and said, "You, I'm calling you to be the one who will deliver Israel out of Egypt. He did not call Korah. He didn't even call Aaron to do that. He called Moses to do that. And then when Moses hemmed and hawed and said, no, who am I? I can't do it. Then God said, well, your brother's coming to visit you. He will be your mouthpiece. And so in that moment in Exodus chapter 3, God chose Aaron and God chose, God chose Moses and God chose Aaron to be the leaders that would deliver them out of Israel and deliver them into the promised land. These are the leaders of the nation, not because of their own will, but because God had chosen them, because of God's will. Now the rationalization of course, rebellion is, 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 might be equivalent to something that happens in our, in our days. It's even... It, it's like someone's basically pointing to the, to the priesthood of all believers. We understand that doctrine, the priest, that we're all priests, uh, in this, of, of all, uh, the, that we're all priests before God, and might appeal to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells within all of us. Therefore, we're all equal. Therefore, it's a reason for that anyone could be leaders, or that, in fact, no one ought to be a leader. There are some denominations that believe that no one ought to be called a leader, and that there should be everyone's just simply brother or sister. Anyone can equally be a leader of God, uh, can speak up and, and make decisions. And some churches are known for that. But the fact is, the, the Bible teaches, particularly in the New Testament, that there are leaders of God's church, of, God's, of the New Testament saints. And just think of Ephesians chapter 4, when, when Jesus gave to the church what? He gave them apostles, he gave them prophets, he gave them evangelists, he gave them pastors and teachers. Those are leaders. Leaders who would speak and lead God's people with truth. Think of 1 Timothy 3, and God gave them not only apostles, prophets, but he gave, these, he gave them elders, and he gave them deacons and deaconesses. These are all various offices in the church who serve in a servant leadership role. And these are by the will of God, even though we all would acknowledge the priesthood of all believers. We would all acknowledge the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In this case, the the rebels led by Korah had taken God's truth. They, they, they had rationalized their rebellion. They wanted to simply 
have the same authority as Moses and Aaron, and they have to twist God's truth to accomplish that. And whenever people twist God's truth to say what they want, it, it ultimately leads to irrationality. An irrational, so it, uh, irrationality in, in our thinking, in, in, our, in our lives. And that's what we see flesh out as Moses then responds to the complaint of, uh, of Korah and his company in verses 4 through 17. And this is the irrationality of rebellion. Kind of really just introduced it, but now we're going to see how Moses in his response to them bears it out, how they're being rational in their response. When verses 4 to 7, let's take a, pick, take a look at these verses, 4 to 7. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take census for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. You can see that. Uh, the, the response of Moses here is strong. Um, but even as he responds, we see Moses' humility. Look at the initial response. What is, when someone complains against you, what, what's the natural thing that we do? We, we put up our hands and we defend ourselves. No, you, I'm not ugly. You're ugly. No, you're wrong. Here, I'll give you A, B, C, D, Y, you're wrong. We will defend ourselves. That's, that's our natural, or we run away, another response. But when Moses heard this complaint, what did he do? He fell on his face. What was the last time you, when someone complained against you, you fell on your face? Of course, you know, maybe what falling on your face means for you is a little different from what Moses, Moses responds here. But in response to the grumbling against him, he falls to the ground as an, a symbol of his submission to the Lord. It's a posture of humble prayer. It's, it's, a, it's a posture of supplication to the Lord for help. Oh, Lord, you've heard the response. Oh, Lord, give a, give a reply. He turns to God when people rebel against him and complain about his ministry. And this is a good example for leaders when we receive complaints. Do we respond immediately with humble prayer to God? Or are we quick to defend ourselves? If you're doing God's work, you don't need to be quick to defend yourself. You need to be quick to prayer. Let God defend you. In prayer, the Lord may reveal, even as you're praying, that, that perhaps those complaints have truth. Perhaps there's something in your life that does need to change. Have the humility to know that you're not perfect. You maybe have a place of leadership in the church, but... You're not perfect. And someone who comes to tell you about, give the share the complaint, they may have a point. But whether grounded or not, the humble servant of God can entrust himself to the Lord. Now, having sought the Lord, Moses responds with a challenge, we see here, a challenge to Korah and his company. Korah and his company were thought that they deserved just as much as Moses and Aaron to, to lead the people. So Moses tells them, well, let's, let's let God decide. Let's see who God decides is holy. Who's the one that God sets apart 
to lead Israel. Let's, let's figure it out. Let's go to God and figure it out. Tomorrow, take, he instructs them, take censers. These are bowls. Take censers for each of you. Uh, put fire in it. Offer incense to it. And offer it to the Lord before the tabernacle. Then let the Lord choose. And somehow they're going to assume that God is going to somehow reveal in a way which incense, which censer he chooses. And whoever chooses, whichever censer he chooses, uh, responds that that will show who God calls to be holy, to lead the people. Of course, if you're an Israelite at this point, this challenge should have set all sorts of red flags. All sorts of warnings, lights should be going around your head when, when Moses says, hey, why don't you take some, a censer and come to the tabernacle and offer some fire and incense to the Lord? It's just, just as much if I just simply told you, hey, next week, I want you to come up here and preach. It is a fearful thing to come and stand at this pulpit and preach the word of God knowing that God will hold the one here to a stricter judgment. And God holds those who lead people, lead God's people in worship to a stricter judgment. In this case, everybody would have thought about, well, let me see, the last time someone offered fire, incense to the Lord in a way that was not in accordance with God's, work, God's instructions, what happened to them? Hmm. Oh, I remember. Fire come down and struck them down, struck them dead. That was Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They had offered strange fire, according to Leviticus 10, 1 to 3, and God judged them, even though they were actually priests. What do, they, what do the people of God, what does Korah and his associates think would happen to someone who offered incense to God who wasn't actually a priest? And they, were not, they were not descendants of Aaron, but they weren't thinking rationally. They weren't thinking about what the repercussions of Moses' challenge was. And verses 8 to 11, Moses further addresses Korah and his fellow Levites. He, he gives them further instruction to show them the irrationality of their situation, of their complaining. Verse 8, then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking the priest for the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Moses reminds Korah here that as a Levite, he has already an exalted position in Israel, serving in the tabernacle. He, he serves as a med- in a mediatorial role in assisting in the, in the worship of Israel to God. But now they, they want an even higher position. They want to be priests as well. And Moses simply points out this truth. They, he points out to them that what you are real, don't realize is that in your rebellion, it's revealing your discontent. You're not content with your, the position, your authority that God has given you, and you want more. You want more authority. You want more power. You want more prestige. A lot of times people go into ministry because they want the power of ministry. They want the prestige of ministry. And that's a dangerous, play, dangerous motivation and it comes out of a heart of discontent. You don't want a discontent person coming and serving in ministry. 
their discontent and greed is, is underlying their grumbling and rebellion. And Moses simply points out this, that they may that they may think that they have gathered against Moses and Aaron, but in reality, he says, they have gathered together against the Lord. Verse 11. It's like, it's like in Saul, in Acts 26, as we read counting his salvation testimony, it was when the, he, he thought he was persec- serving God, persecuting the church, overthrowing these, re- these rebels. But it was the, the Lord who appeared to him. It was Jesus who appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. He didn't realize that what he was doing was he was, he was opposing God's people. When he was doing that, he was opposing God. He was opposing Jesus. Moses here, though, faithfully warns Korah and his company of the real danger that they are in. That you, he, Here's the challenge, but you, don't, you may not realize it, but you're not just opposing me and Aaron. You're opposing the Lord right now. The warning. Not only does Moses address Korah and his fellow Levites, but then in verse 12 to 15, Moses further addresses Dathan and Abiram, the, the Reubenites. In verses 12 to 12 through, we'll read 12 to 17. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. The Reubenites, when offered the same challenge, seemed to have at least enough sense not to respond to Moses' challenge. They refused to come up. We're not going to go. Smart. They refused to come up to the tabernacle. And perhaps they've had a change of heart, but no, their words reveal otherwise. They just, they just have good enough sense not to go up to offer incense to the Lord that they ought not to. But their foolish heart is still reflected in their words. Their complaint against Moses is that he has simply failed in his tasks. They've grumbled the fact that, you, Lord, Moses, you haven't produced. You haven't brought results. You were supposed to bring us into the promised land, but are we in the promised land? No. You've not brought us into the land of milk and honey. In fact, you took us out of a land of milk and honey. Oh, no, never. Forget about the fact that they were slaves there. You took us out of a land of milk and Now you brought us to the wilderness to die. And you haven't delivered in bringing us into the promised land. Look, Moses, you failed. You failed as a leader. You've not brought the, 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 the fruits that we were looking for in you. You need to be replaced. And the phrase, would you put out the eyes of these men, is, is a figure of speech for you can't hide what's clear for all to see. They were basically 
just falsely charging him with the, the failure to bring them into the promised land. You see how irrational it is because they were completely wrong in placing the blame on Moses and Aaron. They were blaming Moses for something that was whose fault? It was their own fault. It was the fact that Israel themselves had refused, remember chapter 13, they refused to listen to Joshua and Caleb, but they listened to the ten, the, the ten spies report, and they, because they were so afraid, they refused, they didn't want to go into the promised land. It was the rebellion against God that led them to judgment in the wilderness. Moreover, they were not complaining against Moses then, but against God, who was the one who issued the judgment of their wandering for 40 years. But of course, they, they don't see that. They don't see that Moses and Aaron represent God. They think that they can be replaced, just like we replace, you don't like our leaders? Hey, let's, let's just vote in somebody else, right? That's, that's how the world replaces leaders. They aren't producing results. Inflation's high. Unemployment's, you know, not too good. Uh, we're, you know, we don't like what's going on in our economy. Oh, let's just vote the people out, just like that. That's how the regular world goes about replacing leaders. The, the CEO isn't producing the proper kind of re, uh, returns for their, their, uh, their sales. Well, then let's replace them. You're not producing. That's sometimes how we judge leaders of God's people. But in, we ought not to judge them in that way. We ought to simply judge them by their faithfulness to God, their faithfulness to their calling, and the results are up to God. In the New Testament, church leaders are, what are they called? They're called many things, but in various places, they're called the Lord's bondservant. They're called God's steward. They're called God's fellow workers. We've already mentioned Ephesians 4, where they are, these leaders are given to the church by Christ, they serve Christ. They will give an answer to Christ. And so with that understanding, we remember that when we complain against leaders, we are, we are very well potentially complaining against God who gave us these leaders. And certainly there are times when a charge against an elder or a shepherd must be brought. But God's word even requires in 1 Timothy 5.19 that such a charge be be confirmed, be brought by two or three witnesses. And even when found guilty because of their public office, they are to be rebuked in the presence of all, before all. But at these words, Moses then became very angry, according to the text. He's indignant, he, he's, uh, he's angry. But what does he do? Once more, he turns to the Lord. He reflects before the Lord his own innocence. He, he turns in prayer to God again. He cries out to God. He declares his innocence. He declares how he's not used his leadership position to take anything from them nor to harm them. Think about the leaders whom God placed in the church. They leaders. Think about the early priests. Could they just go around and tell people, "Hey, give me your, give me this, or give me that. Take this from the the people who serve." No, they could not. It was God who in his law, in his law dis, uh, instructed Israel that from their offerings, they would, the priest could then take to provide for their needs. It was God whom they had given their offerings to, and it was God who willingly gave and redistributed that, those, part of those offerings to the priests for their livelihood. Moses himself here declares himself innocent. 
And with their ref- and because of the refusal of Dathan and Abiram to come up, Moses then reiterates the challenge to Korah in verse 16 and 17. And so we see, uh, hopefully in this kind of a lengthy section, the irrationality of the rebellion. That the, ultimately, when, they were, when these people were rebelling against Moses and Aaron, they were rebelling against the Lord who had placed the, those two men as their leaders. Now, see, the next day then, verse 18 to 40, the Korah and the others then respond to Moses' challenge. And in the response to Moses' challenge, we see our third point, that we see the, God's response to the rebellion of Korah and his company. The response to rebellion that God, give, that God reveals in this, the remaining parts, uh, the last point. Verse 18 and 19, So they each took his own censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregants against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Korah and his 250 conspirators have the audacity to do what Moses had challenged them to do. Despite what happened in Adam and Behu. Despite what they knew perhaps in the, what God had revealed in the law. They each took their censer. They put fire in it. And they laid incense in it, and then they stood before the tent of meeting as if God receive our, 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 our offering of incense. All, and you notice here that all the congregation had assembled together along with them, not just to watch, but Korah had assembled all the congregation against Moses and Aaron. at the door. So the congregation, for whatever reason, had joined together. Maybe they might not have understood the reasoning that Korah and, and others had for the rebellion, but they joined along just, well, uh, well, they just didn't like their circumstances. They themselves were discontent. They themselves are people who are grumbling, complaining. And just like us, sometimes when we just don't like what's going on, we just say, well, I don't like what's going on. I don't really know who the other person is, but I'm just going to vote just simply to change things up. And I'm just going to change it. Well, what's the worst you can do, right? It's all very bad. Change it. Hoping for change, and they, but what they did not realize, and in this case, when they rebelled and sought to change the leadership of Israel, they were seeking rebellion against God. And that's why, at that moment, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation at the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord in the pillar of cloud spoke to Moses and Aaron. Verse 20 and following. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Here we see, once again, the the faithful leadership of Moses and Aaron. God in his holy wrath, in his holy justice, was going to destroy the whole congregation of Israel. It's not just Korah, not just Dathan and Abiram. He says, I'm going to step up, set a step aside. Let me destroy this whole congregation instantly. Thankfully, Moses and Aaron are not vengeful people. They don't say, oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Lord. What do they do? They immediately respond in prayer. They were faithful to their their role. They sought the good of the congregation. They took the responsibility to heart, and they interceded on behalf of the nation. They fell on their faces once again. Don't destroy this nation because of one man's sins. 
They were asking for God to show mercy. And God answered. Verse 23, 27. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. The Lord gives an opportunity in his mercy for everyone in the nation they had, they, who just a moment ago had gathered together with them to, in opposition to God. But now he gives an opportunity for them to disassociate themselves from Korah, Dathan and Abiram's rebellion. Get back from their dwellings. Depart from their tents. And that's what the congregation did. In fear of God, they, they all stepped back. And Moses spoke again. Verse 28. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Moses' words here inform the people that this judgment is it's from the Lord and not his own doing. It's that this is not something Moses decided to do. This is not Moses' plan. This is the Lord's plan. He says, if these men don't die in a unique way, in if they, don't, if they die like other men die, then the Lord hasn't sent him, basically. But however, if these men die, Moses adds, in an entirely new way, say that the ground opens up and swallows them up whole, then everyone will know that these men have spurned not Moses, but they've spurned the Lord. And we see that's exactly what happens. Moses gives this uh, description of that this is this is the test the sign that this is of the this judgment is of the Lord and this that's what we re, that's what we read takes place in verse thirty one and following as he finished speaking all these words the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So the leaders of the rebellion, along with their servants and the families who stayed with them, who stood in their tents, who stood by their sides, were swallowed up whole. The 250 men who offered incense were consumed by fire. God's judgment was swift and sure. The wrath and justice of God took, was right before, took place right before their eyes. But while we don't read it here explicitly, the mercy and grace of God were also at work. Though the sons of Dathan and Abiram were consumed along with their father, Later on in Numbers chapter 26, in verse 11, when we, God gives instructions about the second census, the second, of the second generation, we'll see there the small brief reference that the sons of Korah, however, did not die. 
Korah died. Dathan and Abiram died. Dathan and Abiram's sons died. But the sons of Korah did not die. How is it possible they did not die? Did the earth just come out somehow? Did it miss them? Did it, it somehow say, whoa, they just kind of, oh, I just jumped out of the way and, and, got, and lived? No. The only possible explanation is that they, in response to Moses' warning, the, the God's mercy to say, get away from the tent, depart from their, their, uh, near them. The sons of Korah chose for themselves to depart from their father's rebellion. They chose to leave their father's tents. They chose to stand apart. They chose to repent. They chose to be spared. They chose God's mercy. And we're reminded in this that God will show grace to all who depart from sin and turn to him like the sons of Korah. You know, our fathers were sinners. Our fathers' fathers were sinners. Our fathers' 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 father also sinners. But you and I do not have to continue to be sinners. All of us have the opportunity by the mercy and grace of God to, to turn away from our rebellion against God and to turn, step away from the life of our fathers and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. The sons of Korah did. And you know the sons of Korah, if you guys know your Bibles, you read your Psalms, you'll find that the sons of Korah, became, or these, Le, these Levites were used in becoming... A, powerful and significant worship leaders of Israel. Eleven of the Psalms are specifically attributed to the sons of Korah. Though their father was guilty of wicked rebellion, they chose to repent and worship the Lord. And that's just an evidence of God's grace in their lives and God's grace is for you and me as well. Though you are condemned for your rebellion against God, you only need to repent. You, need to leave, you only need to leave the tents of rebellion, depart from your father's house, that is the devil, and put your trust in Christ. And then we read finally at the end of this chapter, or this end of this passage, in verse 36 to 40, that God leaves Israel a reminder of God's response to those who rebel against God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel." So Eliezer, this priest, took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who was not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. With the fire still burning, Moses is told by God to tell Eliezer, one of the sons of Aaron, one of the priests, to take those censers out of the fire, you know, uh, the, 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 the destruction where, where those men's ashes remain, the 250 men. Take those censers because they had been offered to the Lord, they are holy to the Lord. Take those censers, hammer them out, and then put them over the plating of the altar in the tabernacle. And that's what Eliezer does. And it was... And now that plating, every time that an animal is offered on the altar, every time they would look on the plating of that, of that altar where they sacrificed the animals for their sins, they were reminded 
of the judgment and wrath of God against sinners who rebel. The dangers of worshiping God in a way that is contrary to what he has commanded. In this way, the Lord confirmed the ministry of the priesthood. He confirms by his judgment of these who would offer false, false uh, worship to the Lord, the, the mediatorial role of Aaron and his sons. That their mediation between Israel and God was necessary for the worship of him in the Old Testament. But as you and I know as New Testament saints, we do not need anymore a Levitical priesthood because we now have a, a, we have a priest that is greater those Levitical priests were types and pointed to the ultimate high priest, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect mediator, Jesus, through whom no one can come to the Father, but through him. And all who wish to worship the Lord must do so through God's provision of Jesus Christ's offering of his own life for our sins. And anyone who rejects Christ, who just as Korah and his rejected Aaron and his priests, will fall under the same wrath and judgment of God as did Korah. And so if you are here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ to be the mediator between you and God, to bring reconciliation between you and God, I appeal to you, I exhort you now to receive God's provision of mercy. Do not continue in your rebellion against God for judgment is sure to yours apart from Christ have you believed upon Christ who died in your place gave himself as a ransom for all including you and so we see God's response to rebellion is judgment but even in his judgment God offers mercy as the sons of Korah came to know in conclusion let me just uh, share just a couple of thoughts or questions perhaps for you to ask. If you find yourself complaining against leaders, let me tell you, I've complained against leaders, okay? So we, you're probably there. It's, gonna be, it's not if, it's just you're going to probably sometimes. You might ask yourself these kind of questions to make sure uh, that your complaint is, uh, well, if you, in a sense, is, is, is a legitimate complaint that you can bring and with two or three witnesses to leaders, Ask yourselves, how might you be rationalizing your complaint? Ask yourself, am I rationalizing my, my complaint? Am I, how might you be potentially twisting God's truth to justify your complaint? I'm not saying necessarily this is what you're doing, but you should ask yourself this question. How might you actually be rebelling against God, even as you complain against your leaders? And then questions, final question, for, just encouragement for those of you who are leaders. Maybe you're hearing complaints about your leadership. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it, you will if you're a leader, okay? It's part of the territory. How does Moses' example guide you in your response? Do you respond in humility? Do you respond to turning to God? Or do you respond to swift defense of yourself and perhaps even a response in kind, lashing out at others? Instead, we should... Turn to God. And so, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for 
This reminder from the rebellion of Korah. How not only do you choose and set apart men to lead your people, but Father, any rebellion against your chosen leaders is rebellion against you. Lord, help us to guard our own hearts from having a rebellious attitude towards you or towards those who lead us. But Lord, when we perhaps see things that are wrong in a leader's life, things that are sinful, things that ought not to be, give us wisdom that we might gently, truthfully come alongside to point out error and point out sin. Help us do it in a gracious, gentle, humble way with all respect towards you because you have placed these people as our leaders. And Lord, help us as those who maybe are in a position of leadership and when we hear complaining or we hear criticism of our leadership that we would respond as Moses in prayer. That perhaps, Lord, you give us humility like Moses to perhaps examine our own lives to see if perhaps there is truth to the complaining and the grumbling against us and that there might be repentance needed and change. But Father, help us ultimately to put our trust in you. Help us continue to faithfully fulfill our task, imperfect as we are. We're faithful to do that which you call us to do, to represent and seek that which is best for your people, to love your people and to feed them with your truths. Point them to Christ. For we know that ultimately he is our only hope. Thank you for your mercy towards us even when we have all rebelled against you as you've shown to the sons of Korah. Thank you, Father, that you take sinners, rebels, and you call them to be your worshipers. And Lord, may we respond now as sinners who have come to you and, and, and received your mercy, that we would offer up our worship to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.